0: And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, and cast them out to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these: first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Sim Simon the Cana. Canaanim, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay." Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those towns. I don't know if you've been watching Laura Koonsberg's
1: documentary on the post-Brexit turmoil that engulfed the politics of this nation after 2016. I think she's called it State of Chaos, which pretty much summarizes things. Uh, And last night, it was the turn of Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, who were in the spotlight for that infamous election manifesto. And the party, with a muddled manifesto, it will fail. Uh, And we saw an element of that last night. Just as a company with no clear vision, well, will fall, or a military campaign with no clear objective, will falter, and the church is no different. Any church similarly lacking in direction is going to drift. And for these first six Tuesdays of the year, I think they're very, very key for us. We're in. Matthew, the end of chapter 9, and now into chapter 10. And we're asking this question what is the mission of the church? Now, from its own messaging, I I think we would have to acknowledge that things in the 21st century are somewhat murky in the United Kingdom. Is the church's mission to save the planet? Or is the church's mission to ensure equitable distribution of wealth? Or is the church's mission to advance the cause of the disenfranchised? I remember hearing a bishop of Southwark, I can't remember which one it is now, describing what he saw to be the mission of the church. And he, he pictured the bridges across the Thames and imagined the secular on one side and the sacred on, on the other. And it was some sort of vague idea of helping uh, the secular person to discover the spiritual within themselves. So over the first six weeks of the autumn period, we're hearing from Jesus what he considers to be the mission of the church. And it struck me as I've been thinking about it that you know, with the sum total of Christians in on the planet at the moment, around about 2.38 billion, they say, the percentage of those who describe themselves as Christian in the United Kingdom is 46%. percentage of those who actually say they go to church, 5%, even if 2.5%, of the city were those who went to church. Well, that's 15,000 people out of close to 600,000. What an impact if 15,000 of us were really clear on the mission of the church. If the 46% of people who say they have some allegiance to the Christian faith were really clear on their mission, just imagine but technically speaking, it isn't precisely accurate to speak about the mission of the church. The church is the gathered people of God. It's the end point of the mission. And all sorts of problems flow if we start to speak of the mission of the church. So we really ought to say, what is the mission of the Christian? What is the disciple sent to do? And that's what this chapter is all about. Last week we were looking at verses 35 through 37 and they conclude with verse 37, 38. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to thrust out laborers into his harvest. I wonder if you were here last week whether we actually have prayed that this week earnestly. Well, this week we begin to see the answer, and we are going to look at the foundation of the mission, which is the 12 apostles, and the essence of the mission, which is an urgent appeal, and the offer of the mission, which is peace with God, and then the acute seriousness of our business as Christian disciples the foundation. So from verses 1 through 4, you can see that Jesus calls his 12 disciples. He called to him the 12 disciples of his and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, heal every disease and every affliction. From verse 2, you can see that the 12 are then named apostles. The names of the 12 apostles are these. And the number is important and so is the title apostle and the names are key and the tenses are fascinating. I'll just comment briefly on that at the end. I'd never thought about it until this week. There are 12 tribes of Israel. In the light of the failure of the people of Israel in Jesus' day and for centuries before, Jesus is replacing the 12 tribes with these 12 foundational figures. If you wanted to be part of the people of God and benefiting from his kingdom, you needed to be part of the 12 tribes connected in some way. This is a very confrontational move. The name's are key. You hear some people suggest that the group was not quite as clearly defined as the 12 names we find here. That's because, in one particular instance, the names are not always consistent. Luke has a second Judas, Judas the son of James, in place of Thaddeus, that you can see in this list. But then when you stop and think about it, given that Matthew's quite clear. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. It's not altogether surprising that Judas, whose perhaps second name, nickname, other name was Thaddeus, might choose to go by his other name. I think I would. And it was perfectly common in the first century for individuals to have nicknames and sometimes to have different names in different languages. So you know, we have a number of people here from mainland China with both Chinese and English names. My name is Jejong, you can call me David. My name is E. you can call me Wendy, or whatever it happens to be. And it was perfectly common in the first century for people to have, you know, sometimes a Latin and a Greek and an Aramaic name. The person who's done all the work on this is a guy called Richard Baucom. He uses the language also of disambiguation. Sorry to get technical on you there, but people with very common names would often have markers to distinguish them from other people with similarly common names. So here you can see Matthew's being very careful at Matthew the tax collector. He wants us to be very clear that this is the Matthew the tax collector who became a Christian and started following Jesus um, just a couple of chapters earlier, not some other Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus. So not a different, no, that one. Simon, the cat, Canaan. And he makes this point, uh, Professor Vacum. It's crucial to know that these twelve were disciples of Jesus, the preacher, appointed in the first place to be with him and to learn from both his teaching and his company and therefore qualified for the mission of continuing his mission. This list shows not carelessness, about the precise membership of the Twelve, but quite the opposite great care to preserve precisely the way they were known in their own milieu during the ministry of Jesus and in the earthly Jerusalem church, the early Jerusalem church. It's difficult to account for this phenomenon except by the hypothesis that the Twelve were the official eyewitnesses and guarantors of the core of the gospel tradition. Why all the fuss? Well, because foundations really matter. We had people uh, this weekend, I don't know if you were involved in this or if if you actually did it, doing the the kind of city, the great city run. You run up to the top of um, the cheese grater here and then you have the option of uh, zip wiring across to the top of the gherkin. I have to say I didn't take it up, but if you've ever been to the top of the gherkin, you're thinking to yourself, Well, I hope you are. Somebody working in 5122 Bishopscape has just just met me at the door. I hope you're thinking, what are the foundations like? And with the gherkin, I remember it being built. You know, 333 piles, nearly a meter deep, each one into the London clay. Well, you've got a little bit of confidence when you get to the top. I mean, I wouldn't go there, but there you go. But because Jesus has looked with compassion on the crowd, the end of chapter 9. And because Jesus sees men and women like you and me as spiritually lost, vulnerable sheep without a shepherd, and because Jesus knows that every single one of us needs spiritual direction, or we will end up harassed and helpless, ravaged, vulnerable. Because Jesus has compassion on us, and he declares himself to be God's king, come to provide what we need, then the foundations really, really matter. And these individuals are the authorized eyewitnesses. It's these who are with Jesus, who are given authority, established by Jesus as foundational figures. They are described elsewhere as... The foundation, the apostles of the church, and in the book of Revelation, the wall of the final glorious city had 12 foundations, on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I mean, Judas Iscariot, as you know, gets replaced by Matthias, another eyewitness in Acts chapter 1. I think the change of tense is a fascinating thing. You might be able to help me with this, but I was in a study yesterday and there was a guy on the study from Lyon in France and uh, 35 degrees over there, by the way, if you're feeling hot. And uh, he said, what about the change of tense? I'd never thought about it. Look at verse one. He called to him his 12 disciples, past tense. Verse two, the names of the 12 apostles are these and so Matthew, writing further down the track, is adamant that we should know them. And the early church was clearly convinced that we need to know our foundations. Now, some of us will come from backgrounds where our church leaders use the title of apostle of themselves. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with that. Apostle comes from the word apostello to send. Every disciple is a sent person. Follow me and I will make you fishers of people. But for a church leader to take to himself the title apostle with a capital A is completely misplaced and does carry, I would suggest, a sense of self importance that is entirely inappropriate. It is the 12 who are with Jesus, it is the 12 who were trained by Jesus, it is the 12 who were witnesses. And it is the 12 who are able to record the teaching of Jesus. And Baucom calls them, another slightly um, posh way of talking about, an authoritative collegium. And I think this explains the failure of so much of what purports to be church leadership today. Uh, Dr. Callum Brown wrote a book in 2000, I think it was around about 2003, The Death of Christian Britain. Understanding Secularization, 1800 to 2000. And the mid-19th century is the time when church leaders, beginning in Germany, started to distance themselves very deliberately from the teaching of the apostles. And surely, if you distance yourself from the foundations, when the foundations have been explicitly stated as the apostolic teaching... Inevitably, you will be without genuine mission. You'll falter. John Chapman, some of you will remember, uh, used to speak here, an Australian wonderful friend of ours, uh, and he used to say, you can't fit a cigarette paper in his Australian accent between the teaching of the apostles and the mission of disciples. Well, maybe we'd say a microfilm. You know, It's like someone setting out in a career in banking, uh, coming to the interview and telling you that they don't really believe in currency, or, or someone seeking election as next president of the United States, standing on a ticket that they no longer believe in the Constitution. <laughs> Distance yourself from these 12 and their teaching, and you'll be a disciple with a faulty mission. Well, this is designed to give us great confidence. But then what is the essence of the mission? Well, it's an urgent declaration. And we can see that verses 5 through 10. These 12, Jesus sent out, instructed them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without pay, acquire no gold, no silver, no copper for your belt, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Now we need to realize and grasp from these verses that there's both a geographical limitation and a degree of exclusivity that belongs to the 12 alone. I think that strengthens their position as the foundation of the church. Jesus, in a particular moment in time, he has arrived in line with all the promises of God, right the way stretching back to the book of Genesis. And therefore, inevitably, he's come first to the Jewish people, and they have a duty, the Jewish people, not only to accept him as their king, but also to provide for those who are heralding his arrival, because he's come to Israel as the long-awaited king. Absolutely right that they should provide and therefore that the disciples, the apostles, go out proclaiming and don't need to take a staff with them for their journey or food or a second tunic because they should be provided for. They've come to herald the arrival of the great king. So there are real aspects of the mission of the 12 in 33 AD that are unique to the twelve. As they go to Israel, there's a geographical limitation. They should go to Israel first. Likewise, as an apostle with a capital A, they have unique powers given to them for physical supernatural works that are not given to ordinary disciples like you and me. Just as Jesus came declaring the arrival of his kingdom and physical aspects when he was physically present accompanied his proclamation of the kingdom... So his apostles, when Jesus is physically present, are given these signs, these markers, to demonstrate them out to be his authentic spokesmen. And elsewhere, uh, we read the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so there's an element of this that is exclusive and unique, that's geographically specific for all the historical reasons. But I think that strengthens the fact that Jesus goes first to Israel and that the apostles are given specific power to demonstrate who they really are. But otherwise, the nature of the mission... It's very clear, isn't it, for every disciple. The end of the gospel, Matthew 28, uh, where's commented on it, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them. And look at it here. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it is urgent. With the coming of King Jesus, God's promised King has arrived. With the coming of King Jesus, God's kingdom is at hand. With the coming of Jesus, as if, you know, the doorbell has rung and he's standing at the door. And by the end of the gospel, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and with the ascension of Jesus to God's right hand and with the mission to gather disciples now from across the whole world and with the expectation of the triumphant return of Jesus, do you know this long promised movement of the kingdom of heaven? It's as if the doorbell has been rung. He's waiting at the door. It's an urgent mission to go and declare to the city that there is a king. His name is Jesus that he rules, he's defeated death, he's the king of the kingdom and will usher in a new world where death is defeated, tears are no more, there's no more mourning. This disordered environment is put straight. Everything that spoils this world is brought to an end. He's died for sin, he's risen from the grave, he's king and reigns eternally. And so here is the message, uh, the essence. It's an urgent declaration. Kingdoms human will rise and human kingdoms will fall. And human empires will come. And human empires will go. And in the day of Jesus, nobody could have imagined anything other than the Roman Empire. When I was a kid, the maps of the world were colored largely pink, and nobody could imagine anything different. Today, they're marked with the stars and stripes, and the red flag and the yellow stars, and and nobody can imagine anything different. One of my favorite museum trips is to room 55 in the British Museum, where you find the remnant of the Babylonian Empire, They used to rule the world. Where do you find the Babylonian Empire today? Room 55 at a British Museum. There is a kingdom, there is a king. His reign is eternal. His name is Jesus. He's come from God. He has died for sin. He's risen triumphant from the grave. He is Lord and he reigns eternally. He will return. We are not free agents, atomized individuals. This world is not floating like a meaningless speck. There is a day he will return and his reign will continue to eternity. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I think we've just got time for the offer. Verses 11 through 13. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. Stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Ah. Peace. Now we're on safe ground. But what does it mean to offer peace? If we had to explain it to our neighbor, what is the Christian offer of peace? Many will jump immediately to the conclusion that the Christian disciple is to be a mediator or to give him or herself to a journey of mystical inner serenity. Peace. Just turn the page, would you, and look at verse thirty four? This is a verse I want to take for a carol service one day. I've never had quite the courage to do it. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Oh Jesus has come come to bring inner serenity and a kind of mediation. Not exactly. As an individual turns to follow Jesus, new allegiance, new moral concern, new priority, new passion, new financial commitment, new sense of humor, new call on time and energy, new relationships. Nor is it right to see that Jesus has come as a kind of supernatural United Nations mission, bringing an end to all wars with his disciples as envoys of international relations. Remember chapter 24? Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So what does it mean that Jesus has come to bring peace? Well, the arrival of the kingdom of God offers the opportunity of peace with the king. It has to be the offer that Jesus makes that John the Baptist before him made to turn back to God, to find him ready to accept us and to find ourselves on the right side of the advancing, inexorable, advancing rule of King Jesus. Friendship with my creator. I think that explains why the unworthy or the worthy it's all about receiving or rejecting if you reject the ruler when he comes there will be no peace if you accept the ruler he offers friendship and that shows us the acute seriousness of our business If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. If Jesus really is king, if his kingdom is coming, and I choose to reject the offer of peace, then I'm on the wrong side. And I've taken a decision that has eternal consequence. And Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious as places of abject wickedness. And to reject Jesus as Lord is to place ourselves on the wrong side of judgment. And to find ourselves expecting unutterable misery. Well, next week, we're going to be looking at some of the terms of the contract, if you like. I know you love terms of contracts and all the rest of it. I mean, next week is going to be um, really great fun. So I hope you come back next week. We'll see what are the terms. But for this week, uh, there's a solid foundation to this mission. The kingdom is at hand. There's an urgent proclamation that every single Christian should be engaged in. There's a glorious offer, peace, peace with God. And our business, I don't think there's anything more serious that anybody's engaged in in the city than this. Let's pray together. We thank you for this wonderful offer, our Father in heaven, of peace with you, of relationship restored, of hostilities at an end, of benefiting from your glorious rule and expectation of your coming kingdom. And we pray, our Father, you give us just tremendous confidence in the foundations of this mission and then subsequent urgency in it. For your name's sake. Amen.